everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? It's great to be back doing this with you. I know we took a little bit of a break, and I got to admit, I, I missed you just a little bit, Phil. <laughs> well, uh, I missed you too. It's good to kind of be back in the saddle. Uh, but I, I, yeah, this is you know, this is a very interesting card that we're going to be talking about tonight. Not one of my favorites of all time, and that's not just because of the uh, the outcome of the main event, but uh, but we'll get there. I want to welcome our listeners. Inside the Hescon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. On the episode today, we're going to be discussing Strike Force Fedor versus Silva, which took place on February 12, 2011, at the IZOD Center in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, this would be a, a truly momentous Strike Force event as the promotion's heavyweight Grand Prix would commence, which would produce five finishes on this card, including four in the first round. Two of the fight, the, the, really the just the biggest fights on this card for sure. Sergey Heritanov taking on Andrei Arlovsky, as well as Fedor Emelianenko battling Antonio Bigfoot Silva. So uh, definitely a very interesting card to cover. I want to remind you that Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out their other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. Now, we do have Fallout coming from Strike Force Diaz versus Cyborg, which was uh, the most recent event before the one we're covering tonight. Uh, it took place just a couple weeks before Fedor versus Silva. And there we saw Nick Diaz defend his welterweight title against a very, very game Cyborg Santos in an extremely entertaining fight, uh, while Jacare Souza. Held on to the middleweight title after beating a not so ruthless Robbie Lawler in that fight. Uh, these two wins solidified Diaz and Jacare further as standard bearers for Strike Force. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Nick Diaz ruthless Robbie Lawler fight that we uh, just had take place just recently. Josh, you saw the fight. I saw clips of it. Uh, obviously, a, a Nick Diaz that did not come in. Uh, in the best of shape for sure. He, uh, in, in listeners, in case you missed it, he actually pushed for the fight. It was originally supposed to be 170 pounds to get contested at 185 pounds, and Robbie Lawler uh, obliged. And uh, the first round was very entertaining, but Nick Diaz was just clearly not. I mean, it had been six years, you know, since he'd last competed in an MMA fight, and uh, Lawler just was able to take over. But Josh, I'd love to quickly get your thoughts on the card, or that, I'm sorry, that fight. Well, it was really bittersweet because it was great to see Nick Diaz just because he's such a Strike Force legend and he was part of building up Strike Force. So to watch him reach the UFC and be such a contender over the years and this is his comeback fight, he was kind of cool. The sad part is age catches up with everybody because yep. he was so slow i mean we some of us saw evander holyfield he made a comeback fight saw some of those training clips i mean it really resembled that he was so slow and this is a guy who was known for kind of just peppering people with his punches and also he was out of shape this is a guy who runs triathlons but he really didn't want to fight and it showed he, he was competitive just because he's skilled. But I got to say, Robbie Lawler looked pretty good. You know, I know he's probably not going to win the title again, but it was nice to watch these two ex-Strike Force fighters 
go out there, compete in what was the real main event of a modern UFC card. And, yeah. you know, if, if Nick, if Nick Diaz has anything left, he better train and be in shape because you proved right there that you cannot take anything for granted. If you're expecting to, to fight in 2021, especially, I mean, he's old. I don't know. He's like 38 years old now. Yeah. 38. I mean, I don't, I, I, again, I didn't see the fight. I just saw clips, but uh, based on what I read and heard, um, you know, I'd like to see an in shape Nick Diaz have another fight, you know, I, I, and, and Dana White for his part said he was really impressed by Nick and the way that he, you know, in a very, again, very entertaining first round, the way he performed and just, you know, just, I don't know what happened, but I mean, Nick was clearly in a weird headspace before the fight saying, I don't know how this happened. I had a change in management and I don't even want to do this. And, you know, just saying weird stuff. So, I mean, if he wants to come back, it doesn't sound like he wants to, but uh, you know, nothing, nothing post fight and nothing but respect between the two of them, um, which was, you know, pretty cool to see. As I've said before, pretty much the only fighter out there that hasn't doesn't seem to get more gracious with with age is Brock Lesnar. Even Nick Diaz showing tons of respect, <laughs> you know, after a fight. But uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't see I don't see Conor McGregor getting a lot nicer either. I, but see, I, Conor's already got like a nice side. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like I mean, think about the run up with his uh, with Cowboy uh, Cerrone. You know, I mean, that was nothing but respect. But yeah, I, and you know, he's still so young. I mean, who, God, who knows? He needs to straighten out. Anyways, <laughs> all right. Well, let's get back to Strike Force. Uh, we also saw Herschel Walker win his second MMA fight. He was expected back inside the Oxagon, but this that would actually be it for him. However, we did see Hodger Gracie get a very nice win over Trevor Brangley, and he would return. Uh, definitely a start on the rise. All right. The eight-man Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix was announced right at the beginning of 2011 with Scott Coker revealing that the tournament would take place over the course of eight months. I've said it before. Uh, Scott actually sh- – I was working for Strike Force at this time, and Scott actually showed me the Grand Prix uh, lineup before it was announced, and I was super stoked, and I kept it to myself because I did not want to uh, – I didn't want to be that guy, but uh, yeah, I was super excited about it because it just, I was such a pride fighting championships fan. And this is, I mean, they did tons of Grand Prix and they were always really entertaining. I love the tournament format, not as a regular, I didn't like Bellator's tournament format early on where it was just, that's all they did. But I really like doing this from time to time. I think it's a cool idea if you have like a vacant title or to do a Grand Prix thing and then match them up and against the, you know, the champion of that weight class, I, I think it's really cool. And this seemed like a really great one. Uh, the first set of fights would take place at the February 12th event with two quarter final bouts and three alternate bouts. LeVar Johnson versus Shane Del Rosario would produce the first alternate followed by Ray Cepho versus Valentine Overeem, the brother of Alistair, and then Chad Griggs versus Jean Vellante. The winners of those bouts would be in line to replace injured fighters in tournament bouts, which would end up happening. It was also revealed that heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem would compete in the tournament, and he'd gotten his wish he would get a rematch with Fabricio Verdun. That was one that he specifically asked Scott Coker for. The title would be on the line in that fight, too, which was interesting. Uh, In the other tournament bout, it was expected that Josh Barnett would tangle with Brett Rogers. And again, this was just really huge. The UFC had shied away from tournaments since it's the early days of that promotion in the 90s. So this was another chance for Strike Force to really differentiate itself. And with so many top-level heavyweights under contract, Scott Cooker had a chance to, to make this really entertaining and, and unique. And I remember, you know, again, I, when I saw the lineup, I just thought, this is exciting. Like, I, I was really stoked for this. 
And Coker had really been touting Strike Force's heavyweight division, which had been one of its weakest divisions over the course of its history. Uh, but here was Scott Coker claiming they had the best uh, heavyweight division in MMA. And I mean, it's tough to say the UFC had Brock, had Frank Mir, Minotaro Noguera, Roy Nelson, Shane Carwin, Junior Dos Santos, and Cain Velasquez. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, definitely when you compare that to, again, Alistair Overeem, uh, his brother Valentine, you've got Fedor, you've got, uh, you know, Andrei Lovsky, Sergey Heritanov, um, you've got, uh, again, Josh Barnett, Brett Rogers. I mean, this is a really, really solid division. Is it better? I, Josh, what do you, you have any thoughts? No, I, I don't agree with you at okay. all. Um, um, you know, I don't like, we've talked about how I'm not a pride guy. I've seen clips, obviously, and I've seen which the completely Mordo. undercuts your credibility to all the hard, all the hardcores out there. But anyway, well, well, you know, I thought my passion for Ben Askren and CM Punk had already done that. So <laughs> what have I got to lose at this point? Um, yeah, no, I have to say that I don't like that tournament style unless it's sort of like, I always thought like a one night tournament would be cool. But, you know, I remember with this tournament in particular, getting excited about about the winners and then like when are they fighting next november like like so far away so that's what i don't like about it as far as the actual uh, uh list i think it's close um both both uh ufc and strike force had some quality heavyweights but i'd give it the edge to the ufc i think they had a little bit more i mean we had chad griggs who you know he beat he beat bobby lashley but that's not a guy who's going to last very long, which with most of those guys in the UFC. So, so no, I give the edge to the, to the UFC in terms of the strength of the heavyweight division. And if you disagree, I think definitely at the very top, you'd have to say the UFC had the top better fighters one and two. Well, so I like, that's where I would disagree in that. I think you got me on the rest of it, but if you put Fedor, Alistair, um, you know, uh, uh, Fabricio, like the top, top strike force heavyweights, I would match them up against the UFC's top heavyweights, but yeah. then it quickly falls off. Like you said, Del Rosario, yeah. Chad Griggs, guys like that. They're not going to be competing against the Roy Nelsons, the Shane Carwins, the quote unquote lower level, you know, UFC heavyweights that are still top, part of their top group. So yeah, it's, you know, it's not apples to oranges, but it's, it's, you know, there are still are some differences. I, I, I think it's comparable, but I definitely think the UFC had more depth, which I was kind of surprised by when I actually checked into this um, to see how they compared. So, but, and, and to your point about the, the tournaments, it, yeah, it's definitely kind of a bummer where you do, you know, you do it over the course of eight months because it's like, all right, you got to wait how long till they fight again. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get that for sure. The one night tournaments are really, really tough to pull off because it's just so easy to get injured and, and, you know, and then you got to do the alternate thing and the alternates already fought too. And it's, it can get tough. So the, really the, the, the most fun way to watch them is if like, if you go back and watch like pride, the 2004 pride heavyweight grand prix on UFC fight pass, just go through the events, like, you know, back to back, like you don't have to wait cause they already happened. That's really the best way to do it. I mean, but yeah, like having in real time, it's tough and you can see why the UFC doesn't do them for sure. But I was definitely stoked about this. I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. It, it, it did end up being a very, very interesting tournament. But uh, so even Fedor got into the, the mix as far as comparing Strike Forces tournament um, with previous ones. And, and his, he wasn't talking about the UFC. He was talking about Pride's famous 2004 versions and or version, excuse me. And that had 16 fighters in it. And that was 
I'll, I'll mention the the big names, the participants that really stood out are Mirko Krokop, Kevin Randleman, Fedor, Mark Coleman, Minotaur, Nogueira, Semi Schilt, Ninja Hua, who was fighting two to three weight classes above where he normally fought. And I remember his one fight in that Grand Prix. He, he just, not just dad bod, he looked like out of shape dad bod. It was not a good move on his part. Uh, Sergey Haritanov and others. Most of the others were low level. Like they weren't, you know, some guys were just starting out. Some guys were coming over from kickboxing or something like that. It was not, uh, it wasn't all star studded. It just, it had a good collection of fighters. This one definitely from top to bottom had more top level fighters. Uh, Fedor, as you might expect, won that tournament. Um, so he had more of a right than most adventure and opinion. He was quoted as saying, I believe that this tournament has assembled enough quality fighters and some of the strongest and most inter- interesting heavyweights in the heavyweight fighters in the world. So I think that in no way is this tournament any less than the ones I competed for with pride. I believe it's just as good, if not better, end quote. So hard to argue with that. Uh, but yeah, good stuff. All right, no challengers event that's near this one. There's one about a week afterwards, but we'll cover that on our next uh, main uh, main Strike Force card. So we are to the event itself. Strike Force Fedor versus Silva took place on February twelfth. Uh, excuse me, February twelfth, two thousand eleven, at the Izod Center in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Interestingly, the prelims would be broadcasted on HDNet with Michael Chavello and Boss Rutten handling the call for that. I didn't realize that boss had actually called strike force events. I knew that he had been at them, but I didn't realize that he actually called some, uh, with, uh, Michael Chavello. Uh, Josh, I got to ask you, do you know who Michael Chavello is? Well, I know that he's a broadcaster. I don't know him in any other context. Okay. Um, he's yeah. like, he's Australian or New Zealand from New Zealand. He's one of, and they call him the voice. I want to say, um, his big signature call is good night. Irene. I, he's actually probably my least favorite, uh, com- commentator in, in MMA um, next to Gus Johnson. Uh, <laughs> Cause I just, I, I think he just overdoes it. And I know like I, you know, well, Hey, what about Morrow? Maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a Homer and, you know, because just always been a fan of Morrow's, but not a big fan of Chevello. So yeah. But anyways, I believe he calls uh one FC's fights. I think that's, I think he's the, the, the the main commentator for the play, main play by play guy for one FC now. So so he was a ring announcer then too. I remember Michael Chiavello or the Voice as a ring, I think, was he a yeah, ring announcer. I, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he did that at some point too. I don't remember that, but I, that would make sense. Uh, but yeah, of course, the main card would be broadcast on Showtime with Gus Johnson back teaming with Mar Ronaldo and Frank Shamrock once again. Uh, it's worth noting that Fedor versus Silva would draw the highest Showtime ratings the promotion ever got with an average of 741,000 viewers, and the main event hit 1.1 million viewers. The previous record was Carano versus Cyborg, which hit a high of 853,000 viewers, so pretty impressive for Strike Force and also showing what a draw Fedor was. Also worth noting that there are audio issues for the UFC Fight Pass version of this event. Uh, you can barely hear the commentators throughout. Uh, Josh, was that your experience as well? That I, I could barely hear them commentating over the fights. Yeah, and it was actually really distracting because in the – promos where they were setting up the fights they're talking like, during the promos yeah you yeah, can that. yeah. I, there's this background commentary i wonder if that's just the ufc and dana white messing with strike force and frank shamrock and and just silencing the audio so they can't go watch it and say you know i'm part of the ufc library it's <laughs> i mean i know they're on other shows but yeah. no just, I, I, I honestly to me it was especially the fact that it was picking up the guys during like the promos and stuff, I think they just ran the wrong audio feed. Like they, they just recorded the wrong audio, not recorded 
um, whenever they're putting Fight Pass together and they're porting over content, I think they just picked the wrong audio feed. That's that's my opinion. I don't know that for sure, but I, that's that's what I think. Because I mean, it just why do that when all these guys appear on other Strike Force content on UFC Fight Pass? Like it just doesn't make sense. So. Yeah, that's more logical, but hey, you know, it's a podcast. I like a good conspiracy. A good theory. conspiracy, yeah. Uh, one good one positive thing about it was uh less Gus Johnson, right? So I'm I'm not I'm not necessarily that's, against that. That's true. All right. Jump into the undercard. Uh there was a uh, several several bouts on the undercard. 145 pounds, Jason McLean defeated Kevin Roddy via split split decision. 145 pounds, Josh LeBurge defeated Anthony Leone via TKO come by way of Dr. Stoppage at the end of the first round. 170 pounds, Sam Oropesa defeated Don Carlo Klaus via severable submission uh, coming by way of strikes at 410 of the first round. At 170 pounds, Igor Gracie defeated John Salgado via technical submission coming by way of arm triangle choke at 304 of the second round. In case you are wondering, yes, Igor is a member of the famed Gracie family. is the son of Hollis Gracie. And then in the quote-unquote main event of the undercard, at a catch weight of 156 pounds because one of these guys weighed in at 156, which is... Uh, over the 155, I, I don't know why they, I would think it was like 156.5. So they just put, called it at 156 and did a quote unquote catch, catch base or catch base, catch weight, which makes no sense. Uh, John Cholish defeated Mark Stevens via submission coming by way of something called a kneeler, which I've never heard of before. So I don't understand what a kneeler is. And I don't know why when I was doing my research, that didn't stand out for me enough to, oh, <laughs> knee bar. Okay, I just looked it up. There was uh, apparently it auto corrected me from knee bar to kneeler. So oh, I thought okay. I, I'm apparently I almost just made up a new submission. So I, w- I, I would have said something, but I thought it was like a really popular submission holding <laughs> pride or something. Yeah, no, I totally <laughs> missed that. It must have been a it must have been an autocorrect. All right, well, we'll jump to the main card uh, again. At the beginning of this main card, this was all the uh, the heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, you know, the kickoff for all of it, and this I thought this was pretty cool. They had all the comp- the competitors come out on stage, and they were all wearing these really cool Strike Force kind of baseball jackets. I, I, I'm not like a big baseball jacket fan, but I was like, man, I kind of want one of those. Uh, it was a pretty cool visual, and uh, they had them all come out and announce them. And Fedor got a huge pop, and uh, you know the, they set off these fireworks and then fire like going up behind them. And I thought it was pretty cool. Like this kind of this kind of popped me a little bit. I, I I enjoyed that. Clearly a very big deal uh, for Strike Force, but. Let's get to the first fight of the main card and the first fight, uh, the first alternate fight. Uh, obviously, and I'm not going to say the weights because obviously these are all heavyweights. So Valentine Overeem defeated Ray Sefo via submission, coming by way of neck crank at 137 of the first round. The older brother of Strikeforce heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem, Valentine the Python Overeem, at the time of the fight was a 14-year veteran of MMA who had, complete, who had competed throughout the world. Not an elite heavyweight by any stretch of the imagination. Overeem was still quite experienced, and he did hold submission wins over Babalu Sobral and Randy Couture very early in their careers. Uh, leading up to this fight, he'd scored a pair of 2010 knockouts in just a, in a combined 47 seconds, so he was on a, a bit of a streak coming in. Sefo was undefeated at 2-0 with two knockouts, a former K1 mainstay. Uh, mainstay. He was a six-time Muay Thai world champion, eight-time K1 World Grand Prix Finals tournament participant, though he never did win the big one. Uh, he held kickboxing wins over the, I believe he's called the Black Sniper, Michael McDonald, Jerome LeBanner, who is a all-time great in kickboxing. Stefan Leko, another great uh, in kickboxing. Of course, Mark Hunt, one of the greats in both box or kickboxing and MMA. 
the Hurricane Gilbert Ivel, one of the dirtiest fighters in fighting history. Peter Ertz, another legend. Gary Goodridge, uh, and then former heavyweight boxing title challenger Francois Bota, uh, as well as fellow Strikeforce vets Carter Williams, Bob Sapp, and Melvin Manhoof. So, Sefo, extremely, extremely accomplished in kickboxing and had beaten a bunch of MMA guys in kickboxing. Uh, in his September 2009 Strikeforce debut, the 39-year-old Sugarfoot claimed a second-round TKO win after opponent Kevin Jordan suffered a serious knee injury. All right, this would be a quick, a quick one. You could see Sefo's power early on, but Overeem didn't seem too worried about it, stayed standing until finally shooting in, getting a very easy takedown. Sefo, I actually clocked it. He was on his back for about six seconds, and he tapped out to a like a, they call it like a baseball choke but or a baseball bat choke or something like that, but it was a neck crank forearm choke basically where he uh, uh, over him locked his forearm against his throat and then pulled the back of his head forward and, and choked him out and he got the very, very quick tap out. Yeah, it's crazy. He beat all these big names, but, you know, can't last a few seconds on the ground, you know, defending himself. I mean, this is what happens when you put like a really amazing kickboxer and striker in the hexagon with a mixed martial artist. And it, it isn't even the, as though Overeem is like, you know, an like elite a really fighter. top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a real top level fighter. Yeah. You know, he, but this, you know, Cephal looked good. He was punching. He was he was fast. He landed a couple of blows. Uh, he looked very impressive in the stand-up. But, I mean, my goodness, this dude tapped out so fast. Now, now I know it You know, it feels like you're going to die and, and you know there's no way out. So you might as well just tap and get it over with because you're going to end up having to tap anyway. But I was disappointed that Cepho did not wait a little bit longer um it looked like yeah this is an alternate fight i made my money i'm tapping i'm a kickboxer anyway see you later um i didn't like this matchmaking this goes back to the tournament thing um neither one of these guys would ever have a chance of winning the tournament nonetheless here they are in the opening card Cepho had a name so he certainly probably drew some eyeballs but i was just disappointed that that Cepho just tapped so quickly it was just yeah. over just like that hey i don't know if you noticed but um they said i believe like right after the bout that uh valentine said that if he made it to the finals and alistair was in the other bracket that he would have no problem fighting his brother huh. for the for the title which i was i, I mean i i respect him saying that because you have teammates that won't fight over titles like never mind actual blood brothers you know that grew up together and look almost like they could be twins they definitely look like brothers he's like my brother gets to the finals heck yeah i'll fight him no problem so that I, that was uh i thought that was kind of interesting but hey brett brett and owen did it oh yeah exactly if brett and owen hart can do it then the the, the overeem brothers can no question about it uh <laughs> but overeem would be back four months later for strike force while Sefa was done with the promotion he would fight once more in kickboxing losing to crow cop and once more in mma losing in the World Series of Fighting to Little Known, but a, a very powerful puncher in Dave Huckabee. I actually uh, did a little bit of PR with one of the promotions that Dave used to fight for, and that dude had fire in his hands. But Sefo's uh, done very well for himself. He's now the president of the PFL, uh, which is a promotion that seems to be growing and doing well. He's got signed some big names and, uh, you know, just seems to be on the rise. So so good for Ray that he, you know, had his, had his run and then he decided to step on the executive side, and he's been with the was the World Series of Fighting, now the PFL. He's been with them uh, for, I think, eight years or something like that. So he's done He's done very, very well. So congrats to Mr. Sefo. All right, 
Next bout, Chad Griggs defeated Jean Vellante via TKO, come by way of punches at 249 of the first round. Coming in, Vellante was 7-1 with all finishes. He was a local New Jersey product, so he would have a lot of fans in the crowd. Once a promising NFL prospect while playing college football, uh, he had turned to MMA in 2009, rattled off six straight wins under the Ring of Combat banner, capturing their heavyweight title. The, the then 25-year-old's first setback came in April of 2010 when he suffered a TKO loss to Demetrius Richards after dislocating his elbow, but Volante rebounded in December with a 63-second knockout of Joseph Reyes. Griggs had made a name for himself when he handed former pro wrestler Bobby Lashley his first MMA loss at Strikeforce Houston not too long before this. The full-time Tucson, Arizona firefighter and paramedic held a rec career mark of 9-1 with all finishes at this point, and he had won his last four bouts, though he had competed only twice in the last two years. So the fight commenced. These two were swinging pretty hard. Volante got caught by a Griggs punch. Lots of grabbing and clinching with wild strikes being mixed in. It, it didn't really look like a, a pro MMA fight. It really looked more like a barroom brawl, in my opinion. Uh, Volante did land a very nice high kick that drew a, a pretty good stream of blood from the ear of, of Griggs, and the rest stopped the fight because, or not stopped the fight, but paused the fight because Volante's mouthpiece came out, and you could see the blood really coming down from Griggs' ear. Uh, the Gravedigger landed a brutal right hand that seated Volante, who popped right back up, only to eat another killer right hand that dropped him again. A few punches on the ground, and you could see that Volante was done. He was also gassing pretty hard. Uh, not a technical, in the same way that the uh, the Bobby Lashley fight was not a technical beauty. Uh, it had, you know, it was a crowd pleasing win. It was kind of all the all the dudes that were you know drunk or half drunk at this point probably loved this fight. But uh, yeah, nothing to be nothing to write home about. But you know, Griggs kind of. I think Griggs kind of once again spoiled things because I think he was supposed to lose this one too. <laughs> um, once again, Chad Griggs looks like Triple H. I don't care what you say. I, I don't know. <laughs> when, I I get the burns like based on how he you know when when Triple H had those like super long sideburns, but yeah. I I just I do not see it at all. The no the nose. I, no, he's got nothing. a prom, prominent proboscis as uh, <laughs> the late great Gorilla Monsoon used to say, but I just yeah I don't see it, man. Okay, um, I thought this fight was god-awful. I mean, neither one of these guys knew how to strike or defend, for that matter. His two big heavyweights throwing punches at each other. Griggs, to me, looked nothing like the guy who defeated Bobby Lashley. I felt in that fight, Griggs fought a more technical fight. He tried to tire out uh, Bobby Lashley. He used his leverage a lot better. He used Lashley's weight against him. I don't know. I don't think Griggs was a little little soft. I don't think he trained as well for 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 Volante and and in this fight it was just they were just going back and forth. Both guys were getting hit. Now obviously Griggs was was cut on that ear, so you know that was a little bit of excitement, but you know it wasn't enough for for Volante. I I just I don't know. I just thought these guys were just like swinging punches, and they were slightly above any other two you know mediocre bottom of the card heavyweights going out there and, and competing. Um, I don't know if, if uh, Griggs was supposed to win or not, but he didn't, to me, did not look like, wow, that guy's a rising star after this win. Well, he would take on another guy that you would not consider to be a rising star in Valentine Overeem four months after this one. Uh, while Valente would also be back with strike force soon. All right, moving on. We're moving on quickly here. Shane Del Rosario defeated LeVar Johnson via submission, come by way of armbar at 431 of the first round. Del Rosario was a seasoned Muay Thai competitor who had won some championships, more regional 
uh, type championships versus, you know, competing for K1 or something like that. But a very solid kickboxer. Uh, he had transitioned over to MMA in 2006 and built a perfect 10-0 and record, which included a TKO win over Lola Hea Mahe at a recent Challengers card. Uh, he was a veteran of Elite XC and M1 Global Challenge. Uh, definitely an intriguing prospect. Big LeVar Johnson was 15-3 and three with 15 stoppages. So the dude was, if, if he won, he was going to stop you in the process of put a hurting on you. Uh, he had also defeated Mahe in 2010. He uh, most recently had knocked out Virgil Swicker at a Challengers 11 card in October. He had some trouble with the law, serving some time and getting probation after getting in trouble for domestic violence in 2007. And then on the 4th of July, maybe the 5th, it was basically at nighttime and around midnight, it sounds like, in 2009, someone shot up a family reunion in Fresno that Johnson was at and hit five people. Johnson was hit three times, uh, was in serious to critical condition after being taken to the hospital. So very, very serious. A cousin of his died. Uh, so very, very, you know, very sad situation. Johnson, however, I mean, just proven his toughness. He had a very thick scar on his belly that you could see. But uh, he was back in the cage less than eight, eight months. This fight is not eight months after that. This was a, a longer after that. But, um, you know, obviously just a very, very tough guy. Uh, for him to, to be able to come back like that. And Del Rosario and Johnson would each be making their main, you know, main event or like main card debuts for Strike Force after spending time at the promotions challenger series. And it was very unlikely to go the distance as the pair uh, in their combined 28 bouts, neither one ever gone the, the you know, gone the full distance uh, in, in a bout. So, and, and of course, as we already said, it didn't go, didn't go the distance. So, here you go. But Johnson, after the bell rang, he was loading up that right hand early on, kind of reminded me of Dan Henderson a little bit. Uh, after training some, Johnson got a nice trip takedown against the cage, and Del Rosario did a nice job tying him up and avoiding damage, was able to stand up. Johnson, I mean, you could just see he had huge power, and when he landed, it looked and sounded like it hurt, uh, but Del Rosario seemed to be the better technical striker, and his patience was paying off. He was able to get a nice takedown of his own, immediately moving to full mount, he landed a couple nice strikes from the top, and uh, but Johnson was able to avoid most of the damage. You could see that Johnson just didn't have the ground game. He kept giving up his arm. I remember watching as he's posting up his arm, I'm like, geez, dude, like just take the arm bar. He's giving it to you. Uh, Del Rosario ignored it, looking to land strikes, but finally as the round was coming to an end, he latched onto an arm bar, and Johnson quickly tapped out. Uh, great win for Shane Del Rosario. I do want to call out referee Eve Levine for being right there and stopping the fight before any arms got broken. I mean, it was a, it, it was a nice, nice move by the referee, but yeah, big win for Shane Del Rosario for sure. You know, these are two legit heavyweights. I mean, I was just watching these guys thinking these guys are huge. I, I mean, Del Rosario, did you see the muscles on this guy? I mean, he looked like a, a thicker version of John Cena. I mean, he just had like, no, he was, he's, he gotta be the most muscular like MMA heavyweight just in terms of size you know he wasn't super cut but he was big and i mean this guy should have been a pro wrestler i mean i just like where did this guy come from and and uh lavar was you know he's a big dude too and he's got a striking look and i remember watching this fight and just being really excited about both of them thinking these guys are prospects they can go somewhere uh they're not really great right now but they could be if they keep sort of getting better. Um, the downside of all that muscle is they both got tired yeah. really quick and it yeah. got a little bit sloppy and, you know, some of the striking was not super high level, but uh, it's cool to me to see 
a heavyweight putting on a submission hold, an arm bar, and they kind of scrapped a little bit on the ground. And Del Rosario, you know, he fought for that position and rolled over. And he had one version of the arm bar, and and Lavar kind of rolled over to prevent it. And then Del Rosario uh, rolled back and extended it with his legs, and and it was over. So I thought that was a nice little ending. And I thought, hey, these guys are prospects. And more more specifically, I thought. Del Rosario would be the the big star, the bigger star of the two. Yeah, which unfortunately would not happen. And and this is you know probably the most serious that we've gotten on this podcast up to now because both Rosario, Del Rosario, and Johnson, um, neither one of them of them would compete on a Strike Force main card again, and and neither would go on to the heights that they could have gone on to. Johnson, for his part, would lose to Sean Jordan on a Challengers card before moving over to the UFC. Uh, there he would beat Joey Beltron. And Pat Barry, but he would lose to Stefan Struve and Brendan Schaub. He would then move over to Bellator after and after that, and he went one and three. But in 2015, he would be arrested for beating his girlfriend and end up getting sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, he was released early, however, and came back for what appears to be a one-off bare-knuckle boxing fight in 2019, in which he defeated uh, UFC veteran, fellow UFC veteran James McSweeney via first-round uh, or first-round KO. So you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't, you cannot defend somebody for that. And he had already shown in 2007 when he had some domestic violence issues that uh, this was in him. And and so, you know, very unfortunate that he would go down that path again. I I don't know what he's up to today. I hope that he's straightened out his life. But uh, yeah, obviously, just just not acceptable and very bad. And uh, unfortunately, things were were worse for Del Rosario in terms of what would end up happening to him. He was slated to take on. Daniel, Daniel Cormier and Strike Force later in 2011, but had to pull out after being involved in a car accident in which a uh, drunk woman hit him from behind. Uh, he was then moved over to the UFC, competed twice there for the promotion, getting finished by Stipe Miocic uh, early on in his UFC run, as well as Pat Berry. He was scheduled for two subsequent fights, but had to pull out due to injury. And then uh, he one of those that he ended up pulling out from um, would actually take place after his death in late, two, in late November of 2013, Del Rosario was rushed to the hospital after suffering full cardiac arrest brought on by two heart attacks. He was stabilized but slipped into unconsciousness. Del Rosario was taken off life support uh, at the end of the month and actually showed signs of improvement, including brain activity and squeezing his mother's hand, but sadly died on December 9th at the age of only 30 years old. Uh, so very, very sad. A talk screen showed the fighter had recently used cocaine and opiates, uh, but he died from other heart and brain-related issues. However, the drug use was listed as a strong contributing factor um, for, for his death, but just such a such a tragedy for an obviously very, very talented young man. And, uh, you know, I, I actually I didn't realize that I either had forgotten or didn't realize that he passed away because I had looked him up to see about, you know, maybe maybe he'd be interested in, in, you know, being interviewed for the podcast. But and that's how I discovered that he'd passed away. I didn't even realize it until until I saw that, but just, just so, so sad. I mean, he's the only fighter. Um, well, no, he's not because uh, we did discuss Kevin Randleman before, who obviously was a strike force fighter that, that passed away. But uh, you know, most of these guys that we watch are still walking around today. You know, that we're, we're not at that point where, you know, MMA doesn't have the boxing, the history that boxing does where you've got guys that are in their seventies and eighties and, you know, that are, that competed all those years before and, you know, are beat up and broken down. We don't have that as much because guys at most are in their fifties uh, if they, you know, started in MMA. So there's, there's, you know, there's just not a lot of that. And 
So to hear of a guy passing away at 30, especially under such sad tra uh, circumstances, is just, again, tragic. You just can't think of a, a more appropriate word. Yeah, don't do drugs, kids. I mean, yeah. I know that it's it's a cliche, but um, it's true. It'll it'll wreck. Uh, I mean, look at John Jones. Uh, you know, it's that's alcohol. Alcohol is a drug, and here's a guy who, time after time, should be a man, and he's not because he can't beat you know these these addictions. Uh, his demons. So, yeah. Yeah. You know. So I remember when Del Rosario died. It was really surprising because. His death was reported, and then his family came out and said he didn't die. And then, yeah. like later, he did. It was really like, oh my goodness. So that was definitely really sad. Yeah, I was uh, when uh, I realized now I was not. I was out of MMA by the time he passed away. So that's probably why I wasn't aware of it. But yeah, it, I mean, I agree with everything you said. You know, it's it's just it's not worth it. So very 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 sad. But uh, let's move on. We're at the co-main event. Sergey Heritonov defeated Andrei Arlovsky via KO, coming by way of punches at 249 of the first round. Heritonov was 18-5 and five coming in for his strike force debut. He had wins over Semi Schilt, Pedro Hizzo, Fabricio Verdun, and Alistair Overeem in his career. The hard-hitting Russian was a veteran of pride, K1, and Dream. It had also won four of his last five fights with all those victories coming by stoppage. So he was on a really solid run. Con contrasting that with Arlovsky, 15 and 80 had fallen on hard times at this point in his career. A former UFC heavyweight champion, the Pitbull had lost three straight with those defeats coming at the hands of fellow Grand Prix participants, Fedor Emelianenko, Brett Rogers, and Bigfoot Silva. He mentioned in his pre-fight interview that he now had a chance to get some revenge against those guys. Uh, sadly, he would not get that chance. Uh, great movement in boxing from Arlovsky early on in this fight, though he didn't do much damage. Uh, it honestly looked to me like he was sparring. He was definitely not throwing um, for, for damage. I think he was trying to feel things out, but Heritonov was doing very, very little. Crowd was clearly behind the pit bull. They were chanting his name. However, it did him no good as Heritonov started landing some brutal punches after this. He landed several on the feet, which which pushed Arlovsky back against the cage, and the Belarusian uh, was dropped with uh, with Heritonov falling, following up. Uh, the ref was out of position. Heritonov could have actually done more damage on the ground, but I, I don't know. He just seemed to kind of maybe hold up a little bit, but Arlovsky was clearly in bad shape after the fight. They got a full camera view of him kind of being helped up, and he just he did not know where he was. And you could see on replay, I mean, they were just two very devastating strikes with Heritonov. Uh, you know, landing those on Arlovsky while he was on his back, a left and a right, and just brutal, brutal stuff. But a huge debut for the Russian, for sure. Why does every time Arlovsky get knocked out, why does it look like it, he got shot? Yeah, I mean, this seriously. Is, this is not the first time. Now, this was probably one of the worst ones, but it's crazy. Like, this guy gets hit, and he's motionless most of the time. Why can't he just do Nick Diaz style? <laughs> just go down to one knee and say, I'm done, as we saw with Robbie Lawler. Uh, I always feel so bad when I see Arlovsky get knocked out to the point where I, I was unable to watch him. Like, I would do, like, one eye on the screen, you know, and kind of looking away because you just knew when this guy got hit, it was going to be sad. You know, he was going to go down and he'd be crushed. And, you know, I guess, what was it, the Fedor fight where it sort of all started that way? But, I mean, he just, he just looked so bad. And this is this period where Arlovsky was just basically done, like – you know, we all thought, oh, he's a shell. He'll never be able to come back. I mean, he just looked awful. Um, but, um, you know, he would actually have a resurgence and look pretty good in the UFC and almost get another title shot. So yeah. as bad as he looks here, he just, um, I don't know, he's a strange guy. I just never could get 
had understood Arlovsky at all. I couldn't, yeah. could never understand whether his time had passed, like he was good for the early days of MMA. Things just passed him up. He was overrated. I mean, he's an enigma to me. Yeah, I mean, he's a great striker. Like he, like I'm watching him. Like man, he just looks like such a good boxer, you know. And you know, he was a sambo master, and and he was one of the you know really training boxing. And I, yeah, I just I think his talent level was good for like the 05, like 06 when he was at the top of the UFC. And, and then these other guys start coming in and just, he just didn't have the ability to, you know, move to, to beat those guys and starts going down. And it, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, let's talk more about him in just a second. Heritonov will be back in strike force later in the year. This would be it for the Pitbull and strike force. And he would fight for a plethora of promotions before returning to the UFC in t- 2014. I didn't even realize it. He's been back with the promotion for seven years. He's still competing there. In fact, he's, as we record this, uh, he's scheduled for his next fight in just a couple of weeks. Uh, but, I, you know, and so he's seen, going back to what you said about him being an enigma, he's seen as one of the heavyweight greats. Dude, he's 31 and 20. You know, like he's he's 31 like and 20. Tito Ortiz level record there. <laughs> it's like, I mean, not exactly an elite tally. And, yes, he's got wins over guys like Tim Sil- Sylvia, Paul Buentello, uh, Roy Nelson. I mean, he's got, like, obviously some really, really, really solid wins. But like to your point, I mean, when he loses, which happens often, you know, like, I mean, two fifths of his fights, he's lost. And so it's, it's pretty common for him to lose. Uh, Yeah. It it usually looks pretty bad um, when he, when he goes, does go down in defeat. So I'm, I'm kind of going through his kind of going through his, his, his record, but yeah. Yeah. Tim Sylvia, Paul Buentello, which he later lost to Tim Sylvia. He did beat Fabricio Verdun. He beat Ben Rothwell. Uh, knocked out Ben Rothwell and Roy Nelson in, in uh, you know, in, in consecutive fights. So that's obviously pretty impressive. But then he loses to Fedor, Brett Rogers, Bigfoot Silva, and Sergey Heritanov, mm-hmm. you know, all in a row. Then he beats some lower level guys, uh, and then loses to Anthony Johnson, who was a you know light heavyweight at that point, a guy who'd fought all the way down to welterweight. Oh, Rumble. Yeah, he hits yeah, Rumble. Hard, yeah, yeah, I mean, he yeah. hits yeah, he obviously hits like a like a beast. Uh he did beat actually did beat Bigfoot Silva in a rematch. He knocked him out in a first round fight uh later on in two thousand and fourteen. Uh in the UFC. He beat Travis Brown, he beat Frank Mir. That was like that was the resurgence. He won yeah. one, two, three, four, six fights in a row, which included Mike Kyle, Brennan Shaw, Bigfoot Silva, Travis Brown, and Frank Mir. Uh, which that was a big deal, earned him about against Stipe Miocic. And then he go he loses to Stipe, Alistair, Josh Barnett, Francis Ngannou, and then mm. Marcin Tibera. And he all, like, the one guy on that list, Marcin Tibera, would be the one guy that you wouldn't mind, or, you know, that you wouldn't mind getting knocked out by. No, he got knocked out or submitted by all four of the other guys. He's the, Tibera is the guy that got a unanimous decision. Uh, and then he wins two straight, uh, Junior Albini, and then Stefan Struve, and then he loses three of four. He had a uh, – oh, yeah, yeah. There, uh, he had the Walt Harris fight, which he actually lost, uh, but then it was overturned due, due to a positive test. So really he lost four fights in a row there. He beats Ben Rothwell again, loses to Rosenstreak, and then now we're into 2020. He beat. He's actually won three of his last four, but it, it's against Felipe Linz, Tanner Bozer, and Chase Sherman – uh, with the one loss being to Tom Aspinall, who's an up-and-comer, who's actually, I think, going to be a really good fighter. So he's a guy of streaks. You know, it's just kind of 
been throughout his career. He's been a guy of streaks and just, I don't know if it's a mental thing or just, you know, his ability, but you know, 31 and 20 with two, no contests, just kind of a, um, you know, but, but he's accomplished a ton, you know, one time heavyweight UFC heavyweight champion, one successful title defense, one time interim UFC heavyweight title uh, holder, one successful title defense, first Belarusian champion in UFC history, two fights of the nights, one performance of the night, most wins in UFC heavyweight history, most wins, also the most fights. So he's got, so this, this might be able to tell you right here. He was, he has the most fights in UFC heavyweight history at 35 also has the most wins at, at 20. So that means he's 20 and 15 in the UFC. UFC. Yeah. Wow. So, well, you know, it's crazy. The thing about the number of fighters, Dana White is fired after they've lost like three in a row. Somehow. You know he's still here. It's yeah. crazy. And now he's uh, now he's in AEW apparently as as muscle for uh, American Top Team's uh, uh, Dan Lambert. So uh, oh you know. no, yeah. <laughs> so we may see we may see him in a in a match. I mean, who knows? We'll see. But uh, anyways, all right. Well, we have arrived at the at the main event. Here we go. Bigfoot Silva defeated Fedor Emelianenko via TKO, come by way of doctor stoppage at the end of the second round. Silva was fifteen and two coming in had won eight of his last nine after losing to Fabricio Verdun in his strike force debut. He'd beaten Andre Olovsky, excuse me, and Mike Kyle recapturing his momentum. Uh, this was a huge chance for him, as he said in his pre-fight interview, to be to be a legend, you have to beat a legend, which I I don't think Bigfoot Silva was trying to rip off Ric Flair, you know, to be the man. You got to beat the man. I, I just think that was just like his own <laughs> You don't think he grew you don't think he grew up watching the I, you know, I'm like down, yeah, like down, <laughs> down in Brazil, he doesn't even speak English at this point. Yeah, I'm sure he was a massive Ric Flair mark and was just, you know, looking for uh, the opportunity to rip off one of his famous catchphrases. But anyways, uh, Fedor was 31-2, and two, was coming off a shocking submission loss to Fabricio Verdun in his last fight, of course. We've discussed the career of the last emperor at length, and his list of victims is well known. He's done well against fighters that are much larger than him, which was obviously – going to be the case and here he was you know with another shot to do that against the gigantic brazilian i i mean you want to talk about the difference in size and obviously uh silva had um acr acromegaly you know the gigantism so you know obviously he's disproportionately huge but just the size of his head like yeah. I, I i i think you could have legitimately fit two of Fedor's heads in <laughs> in Silva's like I'm not even joking like I think I mean I don't think it could be on top of each other but I think like just you know he mashed up his two like two of his heads and like the the mass size I really think they could have fit in in Silva's head I mean he's just that big but uh you know I Josh I know you have a lot to say on this fight so we're going to kind of go back and forth uh but Fedor just I mean he went right after Bigfoot using his speed to throw some real power punches early on I can't imagine fighting Bigfoot Silva. I'm going to be tactful here, but you know he's he's not going to win any beauty contests. No, and he's no. he's so big. I mean, quite honestly, Phil, that would scare the crap out of me just yeah. looking at him and just he's being huge. up close. He is huge. Like until you see him and Fedor on the mat, and Fedor is not a big guy, but he's six foot six one. You know, two hundred and twenty five, two hundred thirty pounds. Like he's not a small guy. And you see him and Bigfoot on the mat, like side by side scrambling. It looked like a dad wrestling with his child, his much lighter skinned child. I mean, he's huge. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But I got to say, I mean, can I, I, can I tell you how much I love Fedor? I mean, this guy is so brave, so courageous. He's not thinking, 
how do I win a decision against this oh, big no. guy oh, no. by fighting tactically and tiring him out and then I'll be able to uh, attack him. No, this guy's coming out in the first round, punching, attacking, moving forward, trying to close the distance, risking his own face in order to hit Bigfoot. Very impressive. I mean, this guy, okay, he is a man. He is a fighter. This dude is afraid of nothing. And I mean, I just, I was, I was just impressed with his approach in this round is like, I'm going to try to knock this guy out. That's all he wanted to do. Yeah, it was, and he was, you know, looking good, bouncing on his feet and just, I feel like he was looking for a shot and, uh, and he threw some big punches, but uh, to Bigfoot's credit, he was either able to eat him or, or just kind of, you know, just barely miss or make a miss. And, you know, it was, Silva was avoiding damage. He used his size to clinch Fedor against the cage and, uh, but the ref stopped the stopped it for lack of activity and separated them. Bigfoot started walking down Fedor while the Russian finally landed a pretty nice shot. After another Silva clinch attempt, the Brazilian went for a takedown, leaving his neck exposed. Fedor tried to cinch in a guillotine, but Silva was able to get the fight to the mat, uh, though uh, Fedor, to his credit, landed on top. Yeah, it was really interesting. Silva looked like he was going to easily sort of just, you know, suplex him or side slam him. And, Fedor just maybe his sambo. Yeah, Fedor his... had really good balance, like really good. Yeah. Ba- like I remember clips or clips. I remember seeing him fight where a guy would get his leg, and Fedor was just so like the way he's just so quick. Even if he did get him down, a lot of times he got right back up. But yeah, it, that was I thought that was pretty slick on his part too. Yeah, he just kind of moved his body in a way where he ended up on top. That was really impressive. Yeah. But on the mat from half guard, Fedor, Fedor, Fedor was able to do a little bit of damage, but not a lot. And once he went for a key lock, Bigfoot was able to use that to stand things up. And Silva landed a, a nice right hand that drew blood from Fedor's nose. And the two traded in close quarters with both landing another shot or two. And Silva got a nice takedown towards the end of the, the round. And that's where it ended. I don't know how I would have. I probably would have given it to Silva 10-9, but very close uh, for sure. And very entertaining first round. Yeah, it was one of the better first rounds that I can recall. I don't remember the fight like this at all. Um, I don't know why I don't remember that. I, round. I thought I really like looking back. I just thought it was pure dominance from Bigfoot for you know start yeah. start to finish, and it was not. It was not. That's the same way I I remember. It's like the Mandela effect over here. I'm like I can't believe that you know Fedor was in this for this first round, uh, but it was just cool. I just like his bravery. Um, he's very skilled. He's very talented. He believes in himself. You know, yeah. He's a religious guy. I mean, he believes God's going to give him the power to knock this monster out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, and I always give guys, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian as well, and uh, maybe that's part of the reason why I'm a big fan of, of Fedor because I just appreciate his religious faith. But uh, even though we're not, the, you know, we don't necessarily believe the same, but uh, you know, you know, we've given people a hard time on on this podcast before because. You know, I want to thank God for giving me the, you know, the power to take my opponent's head off. Fader is like the one guy that he'd be like, yes, yes. Amen, brother. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially taking on a monster like Bigfoot for sure. But uh, anyways, uh, but Bigfoot changed up tactics in the second round. I, and this is, this might be the record for the quickest takedown in a round. I mean, he ducked under a Fedor over a right hand and immediately took the Russian to the ground. And that was it. I mean, that was, that was the rest of the second round. He would, alternate trying for strikes with improving position and Fedor was just trying to avoid but just eating brutal ground and pound and he would roll over to avoid damage he gave up his back more than once 
but he was just getting beat up. And as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the Brazilian was just so freaking big. I mean, Fedor just, he could do nothing from his back, but survive. And uh, I mean, he Silva at one point grabbed his kind of was like holding his throat, which I remember uh, Bobby Lashley got a lot of grief for that, for doing that against Wes Sims and the commentators. I don't think said anything about that, but uh, Silva, you know, kind of had him by the throat and was punching down. And it wasn't like a bunch of really super direct uh, shots, but he was closing his right eye and it just, it looked real bad. And Silva got a head and neck choke on and, and Fedor looked like he was in a lot of trouble, but he was able to escape, which actually probably got the biggest pop of the fight. Oh man, him getting out of that neck crank, that was unreal. What I mean, what a testament to his strength and really how far he came from the Fabricio Verdum fight because different holds, different moves. He did try to hold out a while. Remember his head going from white to red to purple and then he tapped. Uh, but he could have tapped here. He could have did a Raycefo here, but he didn't. And he somehow escaped. So I think that was a win for him. Yeah, I mean, but you could just you could see how exhausted Fedor was. He had cuts and bruises on his face, and the crowd is willing him to come back, but his right eye was just about shut. And Silva, for some reason, took the risk of going for a knee bar towards the end of the round, and Fedor recovered and grabbed an ankle for for his own submission, which sent the crowd into a frenzy. And maybe that was the biggest pop of the fight. But Silva was clearly fine. At the end of the round, both fighters head back to their corners, and so Fedor's right eye is completely closed. The doctor stops the fight almost immediately. There was some confusion. Uh, Bigfoot's corner was actually working on his face, and I want to say it took a minute or two before they realized that the fight was actually over. And uh, he, I was—I remember watching, thinking like, "Man, Silva's like not even caring. Like he doesn't even seem to really be that excited that he just beat the greatest heavyweight of all time." And then you can see one of his cornermen kind of sneak up under his armpit and, be, and basically tell him in Portuguese that the fight was over, and he just started like almost crying and he's just, you know, exulting. And, and he's also known for being Christian. I think he, uh, I think he was praying and, you know, giving God thanks and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, apparently Fedor told the doctor that he could not see out of his right eye. So that's the fight. That's how the fight was stopped. That's one of the magic things. If you tell the doc, you can't see, or you're seeing double, they will stop the fight. And, so the crowd, they're booing like crazy. Someone, I guess, threw a bottle into the cage. I don't, I don't oh. know if you – did you catch that when um, the referee, Dan Mergliata, said, like, he cussed and he said, who threw that? And it sounded like bottle <laughs> into the cage. I, I missed that. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, had to, I replayed it like three or four times and tried to decipher what he said. But it sounded like someone threw something into the cage. Uh, but, you know, Silva, very, very emotional, showed a ton of respect to Fedor, went and bowed at his feet you know, hugged him, kissed him on top of the head, probably said some stuff that, that Fedor didn't understand. Uh, but, you know, it was obviously, it was a huge win for Bigfoot. The crowd was bitterly disappointed, as was, I'm sure, you and I, um, you know, watching that. I Again, the way that I had remembered the fight, that it was just complete dominance, but just Silva did the smartest thing he could do. I mean, the guy's a legit Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, takes uh, Fedor down, neutralizes, you know, his, his greatest strength, which is his striking and beat him up until it's just that was over you know and that was it yeah i don't really consider this a loss for fedor i know i'm rationalizing but if you watch it his eye he was complaining about his eye early in the round and i think uh it was a finger poke it was like a you there know, was kind of okay a, so there was there was something in the first round where uh uh silva punched him actually in the eye like in the kind of like the eye socket area 
uh, and then and Fedor blinked like he kind of like motioned towards his eye and kind of blinked and they showed it on replay at the end of the fight and it was a punch so I think he might have knuckled him in the eye and that and that I think that yeah. probably started it but yeah go ahead yeah and then it was exacerbated you know when he was taking that beating on yeah. the ground um, but I mean considering that Bigfoot probably weighed fifty pounds more yeah, than Fedor. Seriously. I mean, I, I think Fedor did an amazing job. Um, I think it was pretty clear that he he didn't have the knockout power to knock out Bigfoot, but had the fight gone another round and he could see, you know, he might have been able to, to wear him out and make something happen. And I don't want to uh, imply anything. Well, I mean, I guess I will imply, but I will say I don't know this for a fact. But we do know that Bigfoot Silva failed a... Uh, a fight uh, because, or he failed a, a drug test for elevated testosterone later in his career against Mark Hunt. And I will say there's a big difference in, in the Bigfoot before he failed that test and the Bigfoot after he failed that test in terms of his ability to withstand punishment, because there are some fights where Bigfoot just folded on a right hand, uh, not nearly as hard as Fedor hit him in here. So I just consider this kind of an odd fight, a weird fight, Fedor did really well. He was outsized. And on this night, freaking Bigfoot was a monster. It's just, just, he's a freak. That's all I could say. Yeah. I'm looking at, there's actually a, uh, um, a spreadsheet out there that shows all the known, uh, drug, like failed drug tests in, in MMA and Bigfoot's actually on here twice. One of the times was actually before, uh, this fight was in, I think it looks like 2008 in Elite XC. He tested positive for baldenone, uh, which I believe is a steroid. I, I, I don't know that 100% for sure, but I'm pretty sure uh, that was the case. And yeah, so the, and then he tested, you mentioned the other one, he tested positive uh, later on in, let's see, it was in the UFC in 2013. So a couple of years after this fight and it was elevated testosterone. So yeah, he's, you know, he's popped a couple times actually. So that's kind of a, kind of a big deal, you know, and, and not, not cool on his part. So, uh, we don't know. There wasn't a lot of, uh, Strikeforce never really had a lot of drug test, uh, failures. So there's yeah. not really, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how often they tested. That's not up to the promotion that unless they go to a place that doesn't test, but that's not up to the promotion. So, um, yeah, I you know I I can't really say anything about whether or not they always test or not. Again, that's up to the that's up to the local um, you know governing body. So, um, but they you know they they had a few. To me, and I don't want to get your podcast in trouble here, Phil, but uh, Bigfoot was just um, oddly aggressive, and he could with he he just was able to withstand a lot of stuff. I mean, Fedor hit him with bunches that took out Brett Rogers. Okay. And Bigfoot just sort of took them. And I think that Bigfoot later in his career got knocked out a lot easier. So I, this is not a, this is not a blemish for me of Fedor. I think that he was fought valiantly and fight got stopped because he couldn't see. So that's all it was. All right. Well, let's wrap things up again. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. I could not find um, salaries on this, so I, I can't comment on that, but you know, quite the card, um, despite all the finishes, it was, uh, you know, really the only stoppage that really stood out as far as like, you know, just, oh, wow, that was a big one was Heritonov, uh, you know, knocking out Arlovsky, heartbreaking loss for Fedor, 
once again, but Strikeforce had to consider this a huge financial success. You know, they sold over 11,000 tickets. Uh, they, or they had over 11,000 in attendance. And then, you know, obviously the big, uh, you know, the big ratings on, on, on Showtime. And this was in New Jersey, which, you know, anytime they do an event in New Jersey, it's always uh, the New York metro area. Uh, but, you know, it, and it also set up a very interesting rest of the heavyweight Grand Prix. But, Josh, I know you weren't a fan of the card, but share your thoughts. To me, it really didn't feel like a true Strike Force card. It was probably because of this tournament sort of uh, storyline that was going on. But these fights seemed sort of like mismatches to me, and were there were like no grudges that were to be settled. So even though there were a lot of first round knockouts, I just felt like they were not really high level fights and then the Fedor fight was a good fight obviously I didn't like the outcome there but what's just one of the challenges with the Grand Prix is you gotta wait a while to see what the next thing is and so if you're looking forward to seeing the next people in the bracket it's gonna take a while and I just didn't like that as much but um you know it was cool to see uh Fedor uh it was cool to see some of the uh the, you know Shane Del Rosario at the time kind of a rising star um, but to me, it just did not feel like a real strike force card. The other part of it too is watching it in this UFC format, not being able to hear the announcers. To me, that that sort of affects my memory of it too because I didn't hear Morrow calling the great knockout. You know. Yeah, it, it. I think it. I mean, in the end, it definitely took away from it. But just, I definitely a historic event. Um, but not one that I would say, hey, you should definitely go back and watch this one. So. But anyways, all right, well, that wraps things up for that. Coming up, we're going to be working on – we're actually working on a couple interviews. Actually, just as we were starting recording this, I got confirmation from Tim Kennedy. So I'm going to be interviewing him tomorrow uh, for an upcoming episode. So I'm really, really excited about that. Uh, Tim actually agreed to come on the show over a year ago. So this has been a year in the making. Uh, we're going to be talking about his fight with Mel Melvin Manhoff as well as his kind of overall run with the promotion. So I'm excited about that for sure. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we're also working on booking an interview with, with Rich Chow, former Strike Force matchmaker. Uh, he'd agree to come on uh, before, and so I'm, I'm trying to get back in touch with him to see if we can make that happen. Our next event episode will cover Feijal versus Henderson, uh, which featured Dan Henderson challenging Feijal for the light heavyweight title. Also on the card would be Marluz Kunin defending her women's bantamweight belt against Liz Carmouche, as well as Tim Kennedy, the aforementioned Tim Kennedy, taking on Melvin Manhoff, as we already mentioned. And then Jorge Masvidal would be locking horns with Billy Evangelista. So that should be a good one. Uh, so, yeah, make sure you, you stay tuned for that. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. And, of course, you can reach me at Phil at Inside the Hexagon com if you got suggestions on uh, you know fighters we can interview or anything that you want you know special episodes you want to hear us talk about you know the the career of Fedor or something along those lines you know just reach out let me know we'd love to see if we can make that happen but Josh I appreciate your time uh, listeners I appreciate your time taking uh, taking away your val valuable time to uh, to download and listen but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset we hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. 
And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 